Hello, welcome to Translating the World with Rainer Scholte, a new podcast of the Center for Translation Studies at the University of Texas at Dallas. I am Sarah Valente, Visiting Assistant Professor of Arts and Humanities and guest host for today's episode. I am delighted to introduce our special guest, Christine Becker. Christine Becker grew up in a notable German publishing family. She was trained at Niemeyer Publishing House in Tübingen, and she later studied German literature and publishing, earning a master's degree at the Freie University of Berlin, where she went on to teach. Christine's late husband, Jurek Becker, is a name you recognize. He is the author of highly acclaimed works of literature, who garnered international acclaim with his debut novel, Jacob the Liar, the first comic novel on the Holocaust. Christine was married to Jurek from 1986 until his death in 1997. She has since edited many of Jurek's works, including a most recent collection of postcards in 2017, which was highly praised by critics. I am delighted to welcome Christine to join us today all the way from Berlin to be in conversation about Jurek Becker's life and works. Our listeners will likely recognize Jurek's novel, Jacob the Liar, especially because it was adapted for film and earned an Oscar nomination for Best Foreign Language Film in 1975, and then a few years later, in 1998, it was turned into a Hollywood movie starring the beloved late Robin Williams. The novel became an international success, being translated into more than 20 languages, Jacob Delire was, of course, Jurek's very first novel, which he wrote in 1969, a work that completely innovated the field of Holocaust literature. In many ways, it was written based on his own life experience. Would you please begin by telling us about Jurek's childhood and his experience during the war in the very early years of his life? It's kind of a, a tricky thing to talk about it since... He himself admitted his lifelong that he did not really have childhood memories. So what we know is uh, uh, information we, we gathered together, we, we had to collect. He did that partly when he was uh, still around, but it, it's interesting that after he had died, me and my son Johnny, our son Johnny, we discovered a, a, a lot, lots of information he did not have. So what we know by now is that uh, he probably was born in 37. Uh, for sure, the Germans uh, invaded Poland in 39. What we now, now know is that they built the ghetto of the city of Lodz where he was born in 40, early 40. And that's, was, that was when he moved with his parents into mm -hmm. the ghetto. So we can assume that starting with age two, he grew up in the ghetto. And unlike other children that age, uh, he spent many, many years there. So he obviously was uh, in, a, in a way uh, uh, gifted by a good health or whatever, mm -hmm. maybe his parents gave them part of their food. Nobody knows how a kid could survive that many years. Uh, but and at one point, the parents must have hidden 
hit him because a uh, certain age of kids were not allowed in the ghetto anymore um, because they weren't useful. So whoever could stay in the ghetto had to work in some kind of way. So uh, it's, it's kind of a miracle that he survived the ghetto at all. And there's only one memory he could share. He says, I remember when sitting at a table with other kids and the task we had was to fill with a stick tobacco in, in, a, in, a, in, in Piper to, to stuff cigarettes. So I, I would have assumed that they do it with their finger, but now they had, they had sticks and he said, this is a, this is an image. I, I see that nobody can could tell me that nobody told me that story. I see it. I see myself sticking tobacco in, in, in paper to create, to, to make cigarettes. And it is, it is a possibility that his father made him a little bit older so that he seemed to be like maybe four or five so that he could send him to work, so to say. Um, what he did not know, he, he thought he had to leave the ghetto and was deported together with his mother. He assumed that there was in 1944 and that they went off to the camps of Ravensbrück and later Sachsenhausen. Uh, but uh, my son, Johnny and I, we figured out after Jürgen uh, had died that he arrived in Germany very late uh, in fall, actually in fall 44. So hmm. he came to the camp as late as possible because that there was after the, the ghetto of Lodz uh, had liquidated. It, it, it didn't hmm. exist anymore. So he must have been hidden with his family until the very end of the existence of the ghetto. Uh, and this might be the reason. So his mother and he went on a train to Germany and ended up in Ravensbrück. And he only, in quotation marks, had to spend six months in a concentration camp. And that made it possible to survive because besides him, almost no child had survived. The mothers did, the children never did. So this is, these are circumstances. Yeah, that if, if you count them all together, it was very unlikely for him to survive. But as we know, yeah, he made it. His mother didn't. She died shortly after the Russians liberated the camp. And his father survived a camp because obviously he was in a healthy state. And he found the kid. And, uh, this, and the father decided to raise the kid in East Berlin. Wow. That's a, such a remarkable life story. Thank you for sharing with us about this. In many ways, it seems like that experience was really very present early on in his works. You know, we have Jacob the Liar, the Boxer, and Bronstein's Children, which are considered to be Judah Becker's Holocaust trilogy. This seemed to have been a very motivating factor for him to be publishing early on, was it not? Uh, there's no doubt in it. The interesting thing is that he earned his living originally as a screenplay writer. So uh, Jacob the Liar, as, 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 as a big subject it is for a mm -hmm. book, and, and as much as uh, it surprised the world, Germany especially, I mean, the Germans were really blown away by, by a, a novel written like that in a, in a kind of a humorous style. They couldn't believe that that was possible. Mm -hmm. but the, the interesting thing is, it wasn't meant to be a book. He wrote it as a screenplay and then uh, because of political reasons, uh, 
and the movie wasn't meant to be made that the director had 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 falling out of the favor of the authorities and so Eurek was was really angry that this movie hadn't been made and out of, out of anger he turned it uh, in, into a novel that's how he he put it it's, it's a bit of a joke i suppose i guess while he had worked on that screenplay the material had become really dear to him and mm -hmm. so he didn't want to give it up and sat down as a young guy age 27 or so and wrote his first novel and he himself was really surprised about the success he did he even didn't know what what he had dared to do to deliver the Germans so it, it came a bit as a surprise but then he had all already turned uh, into being an author and obviously uh, kept on going writing about the subject and you are, I just heard that you're now turning this into a stage production. Yes. Which is an amazing experience. And you would not, you will not be surprised that turning Jacob Delay into a stage uh, in, 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 a, in a theater play was kind of, uh, it was very interesting because uh, it kind of, the book kind of fell, is falling apart in scenes. So, uh, if, if you if you try to 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 narrate the story in in a sequence of scenes, the the book uh, makes it kind of easy because it had used to be a screenplay. So that that was that that was the most easier part to because it's a straight uh, it, it's a it's a story narrated straightforward. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end, a tragic end, as we know. Uh, a little bit more complicated was the fact that Jurek had introduced a narrator in the novel and the narrator tells a big part of the story and what was going on between the people and you had to turn the narrator's voice into dialogue so that was kind of a challenge and i'm not i'm not entirely done yet because it turns out that that uh the language uh, of a book is literature, as we all know. It's a literary language, and this is not the language you would speak on stage. So I have to work on it. But but I have co-workers, and yeah, it's uh, it'll be interesting. It'll be a big step because it hadn't hadn't been in theater. Yeah, we, we look forward to seeing that one day. I mean, it sounds really wonderful. And it, it sounds like the perfect adaptation for the book is really, you know, to be on the stage. It, it sounds really wonderful. Could you, uh, before we go on in that direction, could you make a few comments about the problem that Jurek had being both in East and West Germany? Did, did that affect him at all? Because the Americans don't know much about the separation between the GDR, which is East Germany, and West Germany. And uh, from what I have read about Jurek, it seemed that this was not a very comfortable part when he went from East Germany to West Germany. Um, yeah, I, I have to say, uh, it, it, it wasn't easy for him to, to make this transition because originally he, he, yeah, he considered himself as a socialist and he basically believed in some value, uh, which is solidarity, like equal uh, uh, access to education, uh, the guarantee of being housed and being employed, stuff like that. He really believed in that, and he he thought he might found find that 
rather in the GDR than in the West, uh, which obviously was a, a, a capitalistic organized society. So it wasn't his wish to leave the GDR. So it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't entirely uh, what he wanted, but the circumstances had, had, had turned in a way that they, at one point when he opposed the authorities more and more, when he j just did not agree with the way they would turn his ideals, his I ideas into reality when he couldn't, couldn't agree with the way they did it because they were dictators obviously they just didn't they they provided the people with work and housing but they they didn't let them say what they thought they they did not allow free opinions and he as a writer couldn't accept that so he was more and more opposed to the authorities and got more and more in trouble and eventually they did not publish him so that was the simple reason why he had to leave the country they did not publish his books anymore and he had to go and uh he 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 chose he 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 decided to go to west berlin which was an island then surrounded by the gdr and he rather wanted to live in west berlin with what was technically not a part of the federal republic it, it belonged kind of to the federal republic of germany but wasn't political politically apart because west Berliners couldn't vote for instance and they were still occupied by the Americans, the British, and the French, technically. So he, he thought that would be a good place for him to be. But he had, he had, he, it wasn't easy because he decided right in the beginning, I'm not going to go to Western Germany and embrace everything and say, uh, here I am, wonderful, thank you for having me. And, and uh, from now on, I'm going to praise capitalism. So. Right from the beginning, he decided to criticize that republic as well. So, um, yeah, and that there was there was kind of an uncomfortable path, and he never would leave that path. Well, I just uh, want to say that uh, Jurek Becker is one of the writers whom I got in touch with or learned very early on, and sometimes I wonder because he's a, he is the same age as I am. And uh, that has always been in the back of my mind. And I have never had a real conversation with Johnny, his son, how much he actually remembers or whether he wants to remember. Uh, so I'm, I'm just wondering what, what, has, what remains in the memory of Johnny, because uh, Johnny is a very good translator. And he's very perceptive. And I wonder whether some of the memories that I could get out of him when he was seven years old, a little close to my memories. Uh, but there's no, no answer to this. I kind of believe in the theory Jurek had that if you just keep on writing your life long, eventually you might have experiences the way that you write about something you don't actually remember, and then suddenly it is there while writing. Something opens up, and suddenly you feel, "How can I write that down?" Since I think I don't remember, but now that there it is. So he he believed strongly in that process that that you can access your your unconscious uh, memories, maybe because somewhere they are, they're just not accessible. And he believed in in in. in this possibility and um, 
I, I, I just uh, would like to to repeat what he kept on telling me that he thought it was a blessing that he had no memories. So it, he definitely had that blackout. So he, he he doesn't have any childhood memories, and his 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 being in the world started with age ten, something like that. Um, so when he grew up, he found that he was. A a, a surprisingly positive and energetic person. He wasn't depressed. He did not have nightmares. He did not suffer from memories that other people who had consciously experienced what, what he had gone through. So he he thought it was a blessing. And when, when there were people who said, you know what, you can access that memories, go, go, go to the psychotherapist or whatever, he said, in no way I would do that. Because this is the big chance of my life that I don't know what I've gone through and that therefore I'm a very positive person and therefore I can engage politically because I, I'm an optimist. He, he was he was always positive. He always thought I we can change circumstances. We it's just too easy to say we can't to that oh yeah he, I, I guess he, he really was happy or, or he felt lucky that that the lack of memories made him be someone who always would engage in, 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 in the politics. You have been quite busy in recent years editing Budek's letters and his essays and lectures. And the, there are several books that have come out in 2004 and 2007, as well as the most recent postcards. What is this experience like for you to be working on his personal writings? Um, throughout these years, how has that been for you? Um, there, there are several aspects. I have to say, in the beginning, I was pretty reluctant to do it. Mm -hmm. It was all too close. He was my husband. He was my yeah. writer. Yeah, I didn't see him as the writer. He was my husband. We had sights and uh, I don't know what, and it was a lot of shouting and joy. Obviously, we were a family, and and I couldn't see myself in working. On, on on his his work or, mm -hmm. or on his estate, but uh, it became clear pretty soon that the, my publisher Siegfried Unset, whom I really really valued, and he was a dear, a dear friend uh, to me, and he approached me like uh, six months after Jurek's death and said, "The guy died with fifty nine. This is just just much too soon. We've got to make something. This is not an." It, please help us. I mean, you have to help us out. And if I had been, let's say, a, a yoga teacher, he probably would not have approached me, but I had, I studied literature and I, yeah, as, as you mentioned, I come from a publishing house and he thought I would be quite able to edit Yorick's work. And he said, just come up with an idea. Can please give us something? What would it be? And so it was my option uh, uh, to, to edit the letters. I said, okay, I'm going to do the letters. This is something that fits well in the mm -hmm. work of an author. We have, we have, we have his novels, we have his short stories and why not his letters? And everybody was fine with that. It was pretty hard. I have to say, I don't want to make it a big thing, but the first book was the hardest. It was very personal. Um, I learned something, some, something about him. I didn't know because I collected these letters uh, he had written and he the letters obviously showed sides 
I had not been uh, opposed to because I, I would I have to say in person as a as a husband he was pretty much black and white so he was either angry or incredibly charming and when I when I edited these letters I I figured out he he had the whole range many many gray zones how he would deal with other people it was very interesting I learned a lot uh, so it was the hardest book but then i got used more and more uh, to edit this work and i have to admit uh, in the past two decades it's really now 20 years that I, i'm doing that work there had been a complete change i have to say he's not, now he's the author i'm working with and he's hardly my husband i have just i have to everything else would be a lie it's just too long ago that we've been married and I'm and for too long I'm working with him and I I I taught his work I I spoke with students and he became a subject of of my work so I, I see the whole thing with a big distance which makes it much more easier uh, mm -hmm. and yeah I I I'm I'm okay with it thank you for asking. Of course, no. This is really interesting, and of course, I met you through your son Johnny. And early on, you know, Johnny told me about this book that he had translated of his father's work. And this is the book that came out in 2014. And I think, was this the first time that you included Johnny in the process? And I'm just curious, you know, what was that like for you? Because you had already been working on um, Udex works for some years. And then now to include Johnny in the process of translating his father's work, what was this like for you to bring him into the process of being engaged with the texts written by his father and bringing it into a new language as well? Uh, to be correct, I had included him in my work already in 2010 uh, oh. when I was asked to to uh, edit uh, to yeah to to edit a collection of Urex essays and interviews, and I I had made some experience with American translators. Um, and I found out as good as they were, I really don't want to say anything negative about translators because they did an amazing job. It was, uh, the language, the American language sounded great, but I have to admit, Jurek is, Jurek's writing is a bit tricky because he uses a lot of irony and that's <laughs> hard to detect. It's very hard when sometimes he comes across as if he was angry and he's not. It's just mocking. He's just laughing. And, and so that was, that was a hard thing to, and I, and I figured out that it was, that I had to lead a lot of discussions. There was a lot of explaining when I co-work with translators. And suddenly I thought, if I, if I take Johnny, I never ever have to explain something because he grew up with that guy. He knows what irony he is. So there's no explaining. He would always know, uh, what the father meant and, and, and every tone would, he would not miss any tone. And he was, he was raised pretty much bilingual. And I, I thought he could do the job. He was 20 then and he had a hard time. I was very, uh, sorry. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I was harsh to work with, and he, he he pretty pretty much said he would never do it again. But then four years later, I convinced him to co-work again, and that was a big pleasure because I had become much more relaxed, not so bossy, and I, I let him do his translation work. I trusted him completely. I was amazed how good he worked uh, in in prose 
I mean, it's a different thing to translate an essay than prose. And he found a beautiful language and that, that convinced me that much so that I became easy to work with. So it was, it was a big pleasure and I kind of feel, felt, uh, are we a family business now? So yeah, I really enjoyed it to work with him. And just to add that, he might not want to hear that, but I kind of wanted him to grow a little bit closer with his dad because he didn't have the opportunity to grow up with him entirely. So I thought it might be a good thing, like mm -hmm. the back door, <laughs> to introduce him to his father. I saw that you have been editing audiobooks. How is that experience different from what you have done previously? What do you envision for going towards this direction of audiobooks and directing audiobooks? Um, of his works, of course. I have to admit now, now it, it gets emotional again a little bit. That's funny because I, I earlier told you that the editing of his work became easier and easier. Um, and I, I was, I was a harsh critic of his writing and it was pretty easy for me to make my choices. When I, for instance, edited his essays, I had like piles and piles of his essays, like a hundred. And I know I would only like have to be published just 13 or 15 or so. So uh, my thumb went down. It, it had it, it had to. I just sometimes said, okay, this is not a subject that is interesting anymore. Or sometimes I would even say, this is not so well written. So I was very harsh in criticism, criticizing. Uh, uh, you have to do that and pick just the best when you want to have a good book. And the, the interesting thing was when I edited my first audiobook, which was a collection of, of his own speaking and readings and uh, things he, he had done in radio. So I, I had approached the, the German, big German public radio archive and they had given me whatever they had recorded. Mm -hmm. And I sat here in, in my kitchen, where, where the, the only uh, um, CD player <laughs> is in the apartment. So I sat there at, at my kitchen table, and I had to listen to hundreds and hours of, of my husband's book. And it was a bit hard because listening to him was something different than reading. And here comes the point. That was interesting. I I made the choice to take in something he read, which I had dismissed before. So when I had read it, I thought, oh, no, I don't think people will be interested in that. It's a, you know, it might interest me, it might interest me, but maybe it's a little bit too extended, whatever. But the moment he would speak it, uh, it was so enticing. It was so interesting. And he would just, you could not stop. And so I said, okay, if, if you read it, I take it. That's, that's just, a, that, that was my first experience. It was very interesting. Yes, something that I thought was so touching when I was, I actually, um, I actually got a copy of the German book of the postcards and just reading through, you know, the postcards Thanks, that, he, uh -huh, that he would write to Johnny. It's obvious that there's this wonderful sense of humor. I mean, this great humor that comes across and also the very innovative way in which Udek would use language and these creative ideas and this real sense of him being the entertainer in, in, to the people that he was writing to, you know, even in the postcards to Johnny. I mean, Johnny was a baby, one or two years old. He wouldn't be able to read. And there are these really tender and sweet postcards, as well as the, you know, funny, romantic ones that he wrote to you. Would you 
tell us a little bit about, you know, how was it that you, you know, found these postcards? What was that process like, the selection process like for you uh, to create this and, and put it all together? Um, I found uh, as much as a, a thousand postcards, probably. Wow. So that, that were the ones I had collected from all friends and, and, and family members. Mm -hmm. uh, among these thousand, 400 were written to me and 130 to John. So oh, to wow. find these ones, the latter ones, that was easy. They were in the house. So uh, I had collected mine. Although I, I have to say, you're like, mainly wasn't a vain author. He, he didn't take care about his estate. He never told me what to do with it. But the postcards, he, hold dear, he held dear. So he oh. brought me a box so that I would stuff them in and not. And when he figured out that Johnny would lose his postcards in his room, he would go into that room and collect them and pick them out <laughs> and, and, and put them at a safe place. So so thanks to you, like, these these cards had been kept safely and the other ones i had to ask the friends to give me or at least give me copies and so we had this 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 full range of postcards and um we had to select when i say we this is me and my editor uh late Raymond Salinger. He, he sadly died this year and he was my editor he he wanted this book to to be to be brought into the world without him it, it would not exist and he had to guide me kind of and he he gave me a guideline he said pick the the, the best 250 and that was the first step i did i i just went through them again and again and again and i picked my 250s and after he had read them he said oh my god this is by far not enough we need 450 so i did the same again and and filled it and um i guess i gave him 500 in the end and we went through together and uh, picked the ones out who were too private i have to say we said okay when it came too close to, to family issues we had mm -hmm. to leave them out the the big hurdle i had to overcome was to agree that we would pick these postcards uh they're, they're not typical, I have to say, because they kind of accompanied our marriage and uh, he, he dealt kind of uh, in a way with me. He would not have dealt with friends or other family members. That's obvious. Uh, but we decided to include them because uh, if you publish uh, a work like, yeah, a, a, a work of an author, uh, unpublished texts of an author, which they are, uh, you have to decide for for a, a version which tells you the most about the author, and mm -hmm. uh, I, I I could not uh, neglect that the postcards he he wrote to everybody plus me would uh, reveal a lot about the author. Although he never wanted that, <laughs> he tried to disguise himself with a lot of humor and with. Uh, not giving away anything that that's what he tried. But of course, if you read the postcards, you learn something about the author, about his humor and the way he sees uh, life and the world and especially his, his own biography. And we focused mainly on the entertainment factor. So we said this it's, it's all about uh, showing his his strong will in entertaining other people and that was that was above all as i said earlier he didn't want to 
give anything away about his personality. He wasn't interested at all in himself or psychological aspects or how he feels. This was the least interesting thing. When he picked up the phone and someone would ask, how are you? I always heard him say, I don't know. I don't have the time to think about it. So he wasn't interested in, in, in that thing. So all he was interested in was to entertain the ones who get it. So the message of the medium was, number one, I think about you. Here's the proof, the, the hard copy proof I thought about you. And secondly, I want you to enjoy yourself for one and a half minutes incredibly so please have fun enjoy yourself laugh and maybe laugh again when you reread it that was the purpose that was it and sometimes there was a little bit of an ingredient as well when he was on on on, on long trips or on when he stayed in the u.s which he did very often he, he he was right in residence at several universities in the u.s and so he was gone sometimes for six months or so and the, the postcards were kind of a, a bridge. He, he just tried to bridge uh, the distance. And not not rarely, he let his friends or family members know, you know what, I'm not happy. It's, it's I do that because it's my profession and I feel like an, of an obligation. I think I owe it to the people who are interested in my work, but I'd rather be with you. So that was, that was kind of touching. And when can we expect this to be published in English? <laughs> How interesting. <laughs> I might ask my son, Johnny. <laughs> I already pushed him. I told him it was time for him to do something and make this available in English. He would be a good translator, definitely yeah. so. He wouldn't miss the humor. There we go again. <laughs> do you have one of the, one of the uh, postcards you could read? Oh, the one I, I could pick one of the translated ones. Well, yeah, we you know we are too dumb to understand German. <laughs> All right, I tried to I tried to find one which doesn't need the image. You know, with him, obviously a postcard works with image and text, and he very often picked some crazy text, and the text inspired him to some crazy story because <laughs> I, I forgot to mention. Whatever story he was telling, it hardly was true. So it mostly was invented. And so I gotta find one which is is not is not connected to uh or maybe this one. That that's that's a really crazy one. I mean he used to be silly. And so the postcard was a medium for him to transport his his ability to be silly, which he couldn't do in his in, in the other genres. So this is one to me. So there must have been a, a promenade on, on the picture at some seaside. Do you remember how we laid down on that promenade or at least somewhere close by? And how the whole time you said 9.30 and how I didn't understand what you meant until it became clear that that was the key to your heart. The fact that you change the key so often is a considerable problem for having just found out in no time at all you need a new one. But I won't give up. You can count on that. I'm tough as a GDR schnitzel. <laughs> your heart key smith. 
could you recreate a shouting message between you, him and you? <laughs> <laughs> in German, in German, I could say, so etwas Dämliches habe ich in meinem ganzen Leben noch nicht gehört. I will be, I've never heard something that stupid, stupid or idiotic in my whole life. <laughs> That's so this marvelous German word, dämlich. That's just yeah. the... Beautiful words. So that, that, that was a big, big because he really valued my opinion and always would ask me. And when I was too critical, he might he would he would say that was then the insult. He would say, "I've never heard something so idiotic in my whole life." That's so <laughs> sweet. There you have it, right? <laughs> there was yes. one of, one of the postcards that you actually included. Um, the one that I thought was really funny. Um, the one that starts with you old inflation rate you yeah. where, you know he's saying you know this is my voucher that you can use for the next 30 years but it, it's a, it's supposed to be like you know i'll be this wonderful husband to you but the way in which he writes it i was just laughing by the end of that oh, one i don't know if you oh, want to read I, that one to us i can read it because this is actually i have to say you know i'm happy that you 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 mentioned it That was kind of the most moving piece I found. I mean, obviously, when I edited that book, these postcards had been written 20 years ago and most, or, or 25 or even 30 years ago. And most of them I did not remember. Sometimes I even had oh. the feeling I haven't, I never, I've never read it <laughs> or That's never true. read them because I was, it was in the middle of the life. I didn't overvalue them because they were just part of my daily life. I, I didn't say, oh, postcards from my husband. I, I read it and I put it away or so. So that sometimes I felt, oh, I read this for the first time. And I thought, actually, although he makes a lot of fun and jokes in that postcard, I thought it to be very, a very sweet thing. Yes. Yeah. If, if you don't mind, I read it. Yes, please. <laughs> sure. Thank you. Yeah. Your old inflation rate. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it was this. For a change is a very serious part. Strictly speaking, it's not a card, but a kind of voucher. I hereby commit myself to accepting every kind of complaint from you for the next 30 years, without any sign of impatience whatsoever, and with utmost understanding. This duty shall lapse only on that day a public health officer certifies me depressed. In other words, presumably never. Your cheerful self. Can you read that in German too? Yeah. Du alte Inflationsrate, dies ist zur Abwechslung eine sehr ernste Karte. Genau genommen ist es keine Karte, sondern eine Art Gutschein. Hiermit verpflichte ich mich für die nächsten 30 Jahre jede Art von Jammern von dir entgegenzunehmen, und zwar ohne ein Zeichen von Ungeduld und mit äußerstem Verständnis. Die Verpflichtung erlischt erst an dem Tag, an dem mir ein Amtsarzt Depression bescheinigt, vermutlich also nie. Deine frohe Natur. Lovely. It's lovely. It is so lovely. Christine, yeah. thank you so much for being with us and for sharing about his life and his works, his good humor, the levity that it brings to us. And as you wrote in the biography that you sent me, you ended it with Letters Move the World. 
And I'm so happy to have been able to have you here with us to, you know, bring forward his word and, and help to move it a little bit further if we can. It's really been lovely to see you and to talk to you. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having invited me. And it was lovely to talk to you. Thank yeah. you so much. Besten Dank. Bis zum nächsten Mal. Vielen Dank, ihr beiden. Thank you so much. That was okay. amazing. I'm really moved. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the Translation Center, please visit translation.utdallas.edu and keep up with us on our social media accounts, which can be found on our website. Stay safe and take care. We'll see you next time.